morning. It's good to see you this morning. Mark, would you stay just right here for a second? This is Mark McAlpine. We're, I'm, he's going to take a seat, but he, we're sharing this message series, um, and it's, it's a little different but uh, because it's very cerebral, much more cerebral than, than normal. But uh, Mark is a, an apologist. It's what they call an apologist. Uh, he has a master in apologetics from Biola University. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia that you find in 1 Peter 3.15. And that verse basically says that we're to be prepared to give an answer, a reason for our faith. And so what an apologist does is they study the reasons behind our faith so that we have intellectual answers and reasons for believing the way that we do. So Mark and I are sharing. You can have a seat, bro. <laughs> I'm going to launch, launch us into this. Um, our goal really is in this series to look at what the scripture says about the origins of the universe and compare it with modern science and some things that are being discovered and allow you, if you aren't yet a believer, allow you to maybe get some ideas that you can begin to search out yourself. There's no way that we can slam dunk this thing in 35, 40 minutes. Uh, and help you decide that. It's going to be a very one-sided discussion in this message series. And uh, so what we'd like to do is, as as questions arise, if you have questions that come out of the our presentation, please write those down, put them on the welcome card, and then that'll help Mark as he begins to prepare for the uh, open forum on the 4th. Uh, we'd like to invite you to that. That would be a chance for more dialogue about these things and a, and a more in-depth look at uh, some of the, the findings that are, are being discovered in science today. We're, we're not going to feign an unbiased approach. Everybody here probably knows I am a believer, <laughs> uh, and Mark is as well. So we're not feigning a, 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 an unbiased approach to this, but... What we want to do is lay out some evidence that's, that's being found that we think points to a creator and that will allow you to see the logical case that's being presented for faith in, in God and the Lord Jesus Christ as well. So basically, if you're investigating Christianity, it will give you some things to think about. And, and my hope is that it would spur some investigation yourself into matters that, that would lead you to decide whether or not uh, Christianity is real. And then if you're a believer, uh, our hope is that this really strengthen your faith, that as you look at the way things mesh, that you, you would be stronger in your, in your confidence in, in what you believe. But basically, uh, I'd like to start by looking at the three channels that we use to evaluate what's real, whether or not something is valid. Or real, you know, the, the, we use these when we decide whether or not we're going to buy into something. Uh, just as an example, I'll, I'll choose a diet. So if you're going to buy into a diet, you want to lose weight, and you're deciding whether you're going to buy into a, a diet, <clears throat> uh, you'd use these channels as well. It, these are the channels you use to decide whether you're going to buy into Christianity as well. Um, the first channel is the intellectual channel. Is there good evidence for this? Is it logical? Does it fit together systematically? Does it match with what I know is reality? Um, I heard about a diet on TV the other day. I think it was a promo for a news program. 
And it said, we're going to tell you about a diet where you can eat whatever you want. And immediately in my own mind, I thought, that sounds like my kind of diet. In fact, it's the one I'm on. (laughs) But I began to question whether or not I could actually lose weight on that diet. Because it didn't fit logically with what I know to be true. I'm already on that diet. I'm not losing a lot of weight. So it just causes, brought a lot of questions more than answers. So unfortunately, I didn't watch the, it didn't draw me in. It did not hook me. So I did not find out if it, what the deal was with it. But anyway, that's one channel, the intellectual channel. Second channel is the pragmatic channel. Does it work? Does this thing that, you know, does the diet work? Or does Christianity work? Does it make a difference in the lives of people? And we ask, what are trustworthy friends saying about this thing that we're investigating? So what you have on TV is you have celebrity spokespersons, you know, friends, faces that we know, people that we have seen that are speaking to the validity of the diet or whatever it is. And then maybe we have friends that are on the same diet. South Beach diet, the Atkins diet, or whatever, and it's worked for them. And so that begins to draw us into the validity of, of the thing we're investigating. The, the last channel is the emotional channel. How do I feel about this? Do I feel good or bad when I think about it or am involved with it? And so we use this to try to decide. Now, I feel really good about a diet that you can eat whatever you want. But in a sense, am I going to waste my time actually trying to lose weight on that diet? How do I feel about my possibilities there? So anyway, we we use these channels. And in America, we tend to think that that last channel is the only thing we can use to evaluate Christianity. How do I feel about it? What's what's the my emotions that are elicited as I get around it? But the other channels actually come into play. And today what we're doing is we're working on the intellectual channel in this series. Now, you can't put God into a test tube and prove his existence through the scientific method. So what we're looking at is evidences. And uh, even the people who are putting together some of the videos that we're going to show you clips from, they they don't, uh, as good scientists, they aren't going to draw the conclusions for you. So as you see as you see some of these things and begin to hear about some of the evidences, you would need to use the pragmatic channel and the emotional channel in order to get to faith in Jesus Christ. And you'd, there would be some other investigations, obviously some other issues that you'd need to investigate as well. But we believe these, these things that we're looking at today and in this series lay a tremendous foundation for our faith. Um, let's, let's dig in. The Bible states this. It says that the universe reveals the work of a creator. That's the Bible's claim. Psalm 19, 1 through 4, says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Um, basically, in this series, we want to help you hear some of the things that God's saying or how he is speaking through the creation uh, that he has made. So Mark's going to point out some things that will help us begin to understand the language of the heavens. 
I'm glad that Randy started out with um, a discussion, or at least a, you know a little comment on the field of apologetics. Because when taken on the surface, uh, it appears as though we've got something to be sorry for. It appears as though we have something to apologize for. And what we hope to show over the next three weeks, particularly as it pertains to uh, our universe, our position in the universe, and the creator of our universe, that we really have nothing to apologize for. Uh, our goal is to, as Randy was saying, present a really good case that there is something to this idea of a creator, that our universe didn't just happen. Uh, we aren't sitting here as a big cosmic uh, lottery game, if you will, that everything that we see uh, is part of design, that there's a purpose for us, there's a purpose for our world, there's a purpose for our universe. And while faith plays a role in this, it's a reason faith that we're looking to share with everybody over the next three weeks and certainly uh, as we get into a little bit more detail on November 4th as we do our, our seminar. Uh, we wouldn't want to ask anybody uh, to, as others have said, check their brains at the door. Uh, Christianity is a thinking theology uh, and We've got all the facts that we need to back us up. So we're really, really excited to be here this morning. The passage that Randy just read in the, in the 19th Psalm uh, gave us a pretty distinct impression that God has placed us in what I think is a very, very special place. Everything that we observe, everything that's around us, can remind us of the greatness of our Creator. Uh, we're fortunate enough to be in a facility where all we have to do is look out the window. This is the only, only time that you're allowed to look out the window this morning. But as you look out the window, uh, you know, we see all sorts of beauty uh, and intricacy that God created for us, or that's certainly the posture that we're taking, that God created this for us. Um, even the father of astronomy, Nicholas Copernicus. Now, Copernicus was the first person to recognize that the rest of our solar system didn't revolve around us, that our solar system revolved around uh, the sun. Copernicus was a real man of science, but he recognized that there must be something really wonderful uh, behind the visible world. He tells us, the mechanism of the universe wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator, the system, the best and most orderly artist of all, framed for our sake. Twice in 
this, what I think is a very insightful observation. Copernicus describes this power behind the universe. He, he says, an orderly creator, a most orderly artist. I think he got that right. Everything that we observe, everything that we can see, everything that we know has an appearance of order. Can you think of any single thing that doesn't carry an inference to order? I can't. I can't. Everything that I see has order to it from uh, the computer screen that I can't figure out how to use uh, to the car that I drive, uh, you know, to all sorts of things. There's order in our universe. There's order to everything. I think it's impossible to find anything around that we can view that doesn't have order embedded into us, into it. And logically following, wherever there is order, there is intelligence. Order just doesn't happen. Uh, I look in my son's bedroom and understand that order doesn't just naturally happen. Uh, actually, using that same analogy, um, as we look into the laws of physics, the laws that govern our known universe, if left to their own devices, we're running out of energy. We're moving from order to disorder. Without an intelligence behind us, that's exactly what would happen over the next three weeks We'd like to prevent or present some really good evidence that there is indeed an intelligence behind this order that we're seeing, and we're going to go a step further. As Randy said, it's not our intention over the next three weeks to present a completely unbiased approach. We're going to go a step further, and we're going to hopefully present to you really good evidence that this intelligence that's behind the design of everything that we see is the God of the Bible. Although Copernicus really, I think, was a theist and uh, saw order, saw design in the universe, he really didn't believe that the earth as it's related to the uh, rest of the universe was anything special. This became known as the Copernican Principle. The earth occupies no special place in the universe. That even though we see all this order around us, and even though that order leads us back to an inference of intelligence, where we are in the cosmos isn't particularly special. Uh, Copernicus didn't have the advantage of the science that we have today. Moving from the 16th century to uh, the 20th century and cosmologist uh, Carl Sagan, you know, it seems to me that he should have known better. He expanded on the Copernican principle and developed what he called the principle of mediocrity, that the, the Earth's position and status are mediocre, not exceptional. As we go through... Uh, the next few weeks, we're going to be relying on several uh, wonderfully made videos to prove some points or to make some points for us. This first video uh, is uh, from a video called The Privileged Planet. 
uh, and it will explain, you know, very beautifully and very graphically uh, the fact that we are indeed in a special place in the universe, uh, as the 19th Psalm would lead us to believe. Nevertheless, this reinterpretation of Copernicus became prominent in the 20th century. It's often called the principle of mediocrity. This principle says that our location and our status are mediocre. They're unexceptional. As a result, we should not assume that we are in any way privileged or that the universe was designed with us or beings like us in mind. The Copernican principle and the concept of the Earth's insignificance was popularized during the 1970s and 80s by the late astronomer Carl Sagan. In his best-selling book, Pale Blue Dot, Sagan wrote, Because of the reflection of sunlight, the Earth seems to be sitting in a beam of light, as if there were some special significance to this small world. But it's just an accident of geometry and optics. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. And that is really the backdrop that we're going to use as we continue to show that uh, there's all sorts of scientific evidence that that's just not the case at all. These principles form the backdrop for the naturalistic worldview held by most of the scientific community. What does that mean? Well, it means that they don't have room for the supernatural. If it can't be uh, explained using a scientific principle or a scientific law, it can't possibly be true. Sagan continued, he said, you can't convince a believer of anything. He's talking about us. For their belief is not based on evidence. It's based on a deep-seated need to believe. We're, I think, going to do a pretty good job over the next few weeks of showing that it's Sagan and the naturalistic scientific community that's really grasping to believe uh, what they believe as we begin to show the evidence uh, that there is indeed an intelligent force behind our universe. Copernicus and the, the scientists of his day believed that they were, as they set out to do their scientific discovery, that they were just discovering the mind of God. They were trying to, to learn about him, the, the world that he had made. And then... <clears throat> Uh, you see the jump that's made uh, in, in our modern times, primarily aided by Darwinian evolution. And so we're going to look at some of that uh, as we go through this. But I don't know about you, but as I hear the description of uh, what Sagan said about the earth, don't, don't you feel very, very small? And in reality, in the context of the entire universe, the earth is a pale blue dot <laughs> in this vast, vast universe. And so if we're able to step outside of the universe and look at it and locate the earth, I mean, in, in that perspective, we, we are a very, very tiny planet. And it seems like we're very insignificant 
and that there is a lot of other opportunity for life on other planets as well. And, and actually, there may be. But um, the Bible, in contrast to uh, that, that sense that you get from Earth being a tiny, insignificant dot, it contrasts that with the fact that it says, God has set the heavens in place. And in Psalm 8, 3 through 5, it goes on. It says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? We have a lot of reason as human beings for humility. But it's interesting that the God of the universe has given us a special place. In, in this creation, in this world. Verse 5 says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. What you find in Scripture is that um, God created the world and he gave human beings his image. He gave us this ability, the, the ability to explore. He actually commanded us to explore in uh, the, the first chapter of Genesis to in, in the great mandate there, we'll talk about that probably sometime next week, um, but he gave us this command to explore, to, to try to search out things and discover what's going on in this world. And the psalmist here is amazed that the God who created this universe, of which our planet is just a pale, tiny dot, he created this universe, he pays attention to people. And... You find in Scripture that not only does he pay attention, he's given us a special place, and he wants us to know him. For years, scientists have considered the earth a pretty unspectacular place, and, and pretty much still do. Uh, but I think Mark's going to show us some things that, that we can consider to show how God created the wor world as a unique place to house the people that he wants to know him. God wants to connect with us. And in Acts 17, it says that God did this so that people might seek after him and reach out for him and find him, even though he's not very far from us. So in Scripture, you have two views. You have this view like you're able to step out of the universe and look at this vast universe that God has made. God is transcendent. He's above all of that. In scripture, but yet he's very close at hand. And he wants us as people to seek him and reach out and begin to find him. So, what he's done, even in the way that he's created things and put things together, he has made a way for us, even through scientific discovery, to begin to see him and connect with him and learn about him in that. Mark's going to show us some, some things that help us get along on that, on that matter. In our universe, there are literally billions of galaxies. Um, not too many decades ago, uh, we didn't know that as we looked into the nighttime sky, we would see the light and we would see the stars and just sort of assume that um, the stars were like our sun. But as uh, astronomy became more advanced and equipment became more advanced, as 
astronomers looked at these distant bodies, they discovered uh, just millions upon millions upon billions of galaxies just like uh, our own uh, little Milky Way. And so as you begin to think about that, as you begin to think about the vastness of the universe, <clears throat> excuse me, you ask the question, or at least I ask the question, why us? Why is there life on our planet when, as far as we know, uh, we, we, haven't, we certainly haven't found life anywhere else? Uh, science wants us to believe that uh, the factors that allow carbon-based life on the Earth are really basically good luck. The result of unguided, purposeless, natural forces uh, with a whole bunch of time thrown in for good measure. Uh, given these natural forces and given enough time, uh, science would want us to believe that um, that's enough to get where we are. There are, and, and we'll talk about this in great detail as we get to uh, the seminar on the 4th, but there are more or less 30 different scientific measures uh, that make up what we call the fine-tuning of the universe. Um, each of these factors on its own and certainly more so when you combine them, if either or if any of these 30 factors changed even a little bit, uh, life as we know it on our planet uh, would not be possible at all. And so we certainly don't have time this morning to talk about 30, so I've chosen two to talk about. To begin with, we'll talk about our location within the Milky Way galaxy. As we'll see, and as we're trying to point out, the Earth is located in the best possible place in our galaxy. And uh, this is, uh, again, another clip uh, from Privileged Planet. Within our solar system, the habitable zone is relatively narrow, beginning well outside the orbit of Venus and ending short of the orbit of Mars. If the Earth were just 5% closer to the Sun, it would be subject to the same fate as Venus, a runaway greenhouse effect with temperatures rising to nearly 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Conversely, if the Earth were 20% farther from its home star, carbon dioxide clouds would form in its upper atmosphere, initiating the cycle of ice and cold that has sterilized Mars. The presence of... As you can see on a cosmic scale, there's not much margin for error here within this uh, cosmic or galactic habitability zone. If we're just a little bit closer to the sun, what happens? We become crispy critters. If we're just a little bit further from the sun, what happens? Well, we become ice cubes. Um, in the uh, scientific community, even those uh, who wouldn't believe the same way that we do, this galactic habitability zone is sort of affectionately known as the Goldilocks zone. Not too cold, not too hot, just right. And we're going to see as we continue to go that there are many, 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 many more 
instances using uh, the laws of physics, using the laws of nature, that this cosmic computer is dialed just right. As we continue uh, in our discussion, you know, the fine-tuning of the universe, the law of gravity. If there's no gravity, simply speaking, there's no us. Uh, without gravity, there would be nothing to hold together what we see. Uh, if the gravity were, if the gravitational force was, was not strong enough, there would be no force to pull particles together. If the gravitational force was too strong, everything would end up being a large black hole. Uh, there'd be no stars, no planets, no us. But it's not just the fact that we have gravity. It's the uh, degree to which this gravitational knob has been fine-tuned on, again, this great cosmic computer. We now have a clip from a DVD uh, that's entitled The Case for the Creator, uh, produced by a man named Lee Strobel, who started life as an atheist and decided to, to take uh, an honest intellectual challenge, looked into the premises of Christianity, uh, became a believer to the point that he would produce something like this. Strobel learned that life also hinges on the precise strengths and relative values of many different physical constants. One example of this fine-tuning is the force of gravity. Imagine a ruler divided up into one-inch increments and then stretched across the entire universe, a distance of some 14 billion light-years. For the purposes of illustration, the ruler represents the possible range for gravity. In other words, the setting for the strength of gravity could have been anywhere along the ruler, but it just happens to be situated in exactly the right place so that life is possible. Now, if you were to change the force of gravity by moving the setting just one inch compared to the entire width of the universe, the effect on life would be catastrophic. As amazing as that is, the story gets even better. Uh, the, the, the other of the, the second uh, point that I wanted to talk about in terms of the fine-tuning of the universe is called the cosmological constant. The cosmological constant. A hundred years ago, and all time before then, science thought that the universe was eternal, that everything that, that we knew, matter, uh, planets, stars, everything was eternal. That all changed in 1915 with Albert Einstein and his theory of general relativity. Uh, in his theory, uh, Einstein postulated that the universe was in a constant state of either expansion or contraction. Uh, to expand, you have to have a point that you're expanding from. So it pointed to what the scientific community talks to, uh, refers to as singularity, or that one point in time where everything that we know began. This wasn't what Einstein was trying to do. In fact, he wasn't all that excited uh, about that because he 
along with the rest of the scientific community, believed in and wanted to believe in the eternality of the universe. A couple of decades later, uh, Edwin Hubble, a young astronomer at the Mount Wilson Observatory in Los Angeles, through his research, proved Einstein's theory to be correct, that the universe was indeed expanding, and it was expanding at a constant speed. Um, that expansion does a couple of things. It tells us that it leads us back to, again, the fact that if something expands, there must have been a point of beginning. That sounds more like Genesis than evolution to me, that there must have been a point of beginning. And the speed of the expansion of the universe was really critical to the ability of life as we know it to form. Um, if, we, if the cosmological constant changed by, and I'm going to read this to make sure that I, I get this right for everybody, it changed by one part in 100 million, billion, 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 billion. That's a lot of zeros. Life as we know it would not exist. That's the fine-tuning of the universe there. Then, if you take what we talked about with the force of gravity and combine it with the probability of any even infinitesimal change in the cosmological constant, then if there was a change of one part in a hundred million, trillion, 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 life as we know it uh, wouldn't exist. Again, this is taking the evidence that science gives us and giving it right back to them. This is only two of the 30 that we talked about. If it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's likely a duck. Think about this. If our world looks fine-tuned for life, perhaps it is. And if our world is fine-tuned, there must be a fine-tuner. Look at Romans 1.20. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Uh, we can know some things about God and what exists in nature and the universe. And to me, I'm not, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not an astrophysicist. I'm not an astronomer. I've done very little reading in those areas. None in math, mathematics. Let me just point that out. None whatsoever. Um, but um, the thing that strikes me as I've been looking over this stuff lately, I've been introduced to it recently, um, is that, that habitable zone and how this expresses God's, God's desire to make life possible so that he could have a relationship with us. That's the perspective you find in Scripture. He, scripture in Ecclesiastes, it says that he put eternity in our hearts. And so combine that with what we can know about him in the universe and we we know there's more than just matter. There's something inside of us that just is so empty just to think about just matter. And there just has to be more. So we go on this search. But think about the habitable zone 
and just in our solar system, there's there's only a one habitable zone that the Earth could be in to allow life to exist. You take our galaxy, and in the universe, there's a habitable zone. Our galaxy is in the precise place that it would need to be to allow for life to exist. Not only that, our galaxy is in the, the place that it would need to be to allow for scientific discovery, to allow us to begin to, to look out beyond us. We would be blocked. It would be like staring at a wall if we were in certain places in the universe. And it's, it's fascinating, too, that the atmosphere that is created here on Earth that allows for us to breathe and life to exist, it's transparent. We can see through it. And so we can discover things out there. I think you, these, are, these are the traces of love that we find in creation and what's been made. And uh, we can understand, we can begin to understand, or at least it'll lead you to check it out, uh, whether or not there is, there is a God, because that's what he wants. He's put things together the way he has and put eternity in our hearts. He's made us in his image. And he, he wants us in our longing to investigate these things. So my prayer is, if you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, that you'd dig in and start investigating. And if you have, that you'd allow this to strengthen your faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth that we find in your word. Thank you for making this world the way you have and creating the universe so that we could discover things. Thank you for giving us that ability, the intellect that we have, the, the ability to communicate, develop relationships. And God, for your love for us and that you have uh, made us so that we could know you and so that we could find you since we've been lost to you in our rebellion, God. Thank you for your patience and your kindness. Help us, Father, to uh, continue uh, to follow you, those who are, and, and God help us to discover you, those who haven't yet. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask for this help. Amen.